Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subway, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And back for his sophomore turn on the show is former Wargasm bass player and author of the excellent blog Mayo Noise. Please welcome all the way from Boston, my pal, Mr. Bob Mayo. Bob, how are you, man? I'm great, Brent. It's really cool to be back on the show. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am, and it is fantastic to have you. So, in addition to being a good man, Bob, you are a wise and articulate man when it comes to music, and I'm looking forward to digging into these tunes that you provided me with, because uh, they take me right back to my childhood. A couple of these actually remind me of exactly where I was when I heard them for the first time. Very powerful. Well, it's funny, because when I put the list together uh, and typed it into the message box for you, I looked at it and I said, you know, I discovered all of these songs while I was in high school. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what they all had in common. Now, you know, some people might say, well, that's kind of boring. You haven't discovered anything new since then, which is not true. I've discovered tons and tons of new stuff since Mm -hmm. then, but nothing that has resonated with me over the decades like this stuff has. And, you know, it all has to do with how old you were and what was going on in your life at the time when you found this stuff and what it's it's emotionally connected to. Mm -hmm. And I think I mentioned the last time we talked that my... My high school years were pretty tough. My family situation was pretty tough. And all these songs that I gave you this go-around are, are really, they were kind of like my best friends back in high school. They were a means of escape. Mm-hmm. They were they were always there when I needed them. They they were very welcoming to me. They, they made me feel powerful. They, they took me away. They gave me strength. And really, this, this handful of songs is a, is a really good kind of window into my soul, really. Yeah. And that might sound a little crazy if you're, you want to make a playlist out of these songs and listen to them. You might think that's a little bit nuts that, uh, you know, this is really what my soul says. But it is what it is. It's the truth. It it, it really motivated me back then to to survive. And, and now it just they just bring me so much joy. It just is what it is. Well, you know what? That's not silly at all. You're to be commended for that because honesty is what I'm looking for here. You know, and I've, I've said this before on previous episodes where... Nobody's done it yet, but it's easy to make the mistake of saying, well, you know, I, I want to put some kind of exotic, elaborate songs on here that will give me credibility. But you have to be honest when, you, when you're when you digging into this. And, and I really like the fact that you, you, you disregard the fact that this, this could turn out ugly, right? Because really, you're getting the real result. And this is telling you a lot about yourself. And that's what this whole thing is all about. Well, that's why I enjoy talking with you, because I always learn a lot about myself and and digging into this stuff is really just like going back and digging into myself. Yeah, I I feel the exact same. I'm glad that you did this. This is exactly what I did. And I don't know if you have the books. You're going to, you know, off air, you have to give me your mailing address. I'm going to send you a couple copies. Love to. You and I are peas in a pod, sir. That's for sure. So with that, let's get into your first tune. It's by Cheap Trick, and it's called The House is Rockin' with Domestic Problems. Yeah, I know I picked uh, Cheap Trick the first go-around, but I have to pick them again. They're probably my favorite band Mm -hmm. ever, which might surprise some Orgasm fans out there. But again, (laughs) it it is what it is. They're the band I've seen more times than any other band. I've seen them 26 times. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But I'm fascinated by this band. They kind of have a duality to them. They're known as like a power pop, hard rock band. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of melodic stuff, and they've got a handful of radio hits that everybody knows. But the other side of them, 
they could rock along with anybody else back in the 70s. They, and this song, The House is Rockin', is a, the best example of just how down and dirty they could get. Mm-hmm. And it really cruises along really well. The riff is super cool. The drum beat that Bunny Carlos plays throughout this song just positively slays me. Yeah. As a musician, it's it's a feel, a drum beat and a feel that I really have never heard duplicated anywhere else uh, other than on some other cheap trick songs but it's it's a really cool tune it's funny as hell just like a lot of their stuff is they're like blue oyster cult you kind of have to look below the surface for another level and there's a lot of humor in their stuff yeah their earliest stuff has a lot of dark subject matter to it but it's it's all presented in this sweet little tied up in a bow package and it's it's kind of subversive that way, especially if you read the lyrics to even, the, I think, probably their biggest. Uh, well, I guess I Want You to Want Me would be the biggest, but uh, Surrender. Surrender, for sure. Lyrics to Surrender are really disgusting if you pick them apart. But yeah. you listen to it on the radio while you're driving down the street and, and you don't you don't look at it at that level. It's there if you want to. But yeah, and I did want to. So I'm, a, I'm definitely a lyrics guy and, and their lyrics fascinate me because. They have some intentional, nonsensical lyrics in some songs. They have some really objectionable stuff that probably wouldn't get released today, mm-hmm. 40 years later. And they have the shiny, happy pop stuff, too. It, it, they're really kind of a complex group. But today we're talking about the stuff that has helped me survive high school. And this is one of the songs that just really, really reeled through my mind in a big, endless loop and got me through the day. It's a great hard rock song another cool feature at the end of this song too is there's a guitar solo for the outro of the song and yep. rick Niels throws in a bunch of different licks from other songs that you might recognize on purpose during the outro you can hear a little bit of please please me in there you can hear a little bit of the yardbirds think about it song uh, they're just a really fun band yeah i like when bands do that it's a little nod to the people who inspired them i think that's really cool this is, um, I think this is from Dream Police. And it, it, for me, this is the embodiment, you know, of everything that was really great about late 70s rock. I agree with you. It's, um, like I said, the riff is great. The, the, the unison playing is fantastic. Obviously, Robin Zander is just a complete genius. He can, he can be like three or four different characters in the same song and, and yeah. sell all of it 100%. Yep. Yep. And this song, he's he's kind of a, a raven maniac in this song, and it, he's just as good at playing the raven maniac as he is in as the guy who sings "I Want You to Want Me." Yeah, he's a complete genius. I, I'm, I he's one of my heroes. Yeah, uh, really underrated band, I think, just in terms of the the things that go on, as you say, kind of under the surface, right? With the subversive lyrics. And I was thinking about Surrender the last time we talked. And, uh, you know, if you go through these lyrics, I'm a lyrics guy too, because it often gives you another dimension, you know, when you're listening to the music. And it'll take you in a different direction often because, you know, some people don't pay attention to the lyrics and they just focus on the melodies and the, and the, the musical aspect of it. But the lyrics just kind of open up this new door for you if, if you're inclined to, to really kind of dig into them. And, you know, I would urge listeners to, to check out the lyrics to Surrender because they might not be what you think. Right, and I do, with shameless plug time, I do have a, um, a blog post about that song uh, where I dissect 
those lyrics and, and kind of explain exactly what's going on in that song. And I think a lot of people, if they want to cruise over to the, the uh, Mayo Noise blog, and, and it, the, the post is called, And Don't Give Yourself Away, which is a line from the song. Mm-hmm. If you want to take five or ten minutes and read that, you know, and listen to the song right afterwards, I think it, it'll be a brand new song for you, I think. Yeah, I've read it. As I said at the top of the show, I fully support your blog. I think it's fantastic. Tom Doyle actually pointed it out to me, a listener and a, and a reader, and now a buddy. And uh, it's rich with a lot of great detail about bands and, and, and records that, um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. It's stuff, stuff that I didn't know. So I fully endorse the, the blog as well. Well, thank you, sir. Oh, you're welcome. It's a great read, man. Uh, your next tune is Van Halen, I'm the One, from their debut record. Love it. This is one of the songs, Bob, that brings me back. I remember buying this this cassette. I think it was maybe 79 or 80. I was on vacation uh, as a little kid, and uh, I bought it at like a truck stop. <laughs> and I listened to it that night, and I was just, I was compelled, man. I love this album. Yeah, when this record came out, it was like a comet just exploding. It was It's unbelievable. Yeah. If you can place yourself back in the context of 1978 and you know what was a hard rock status quo at the time, you were listening to Kiss, who were just on the cusp of becoming ridiculous. And, yeah. and, and Cheap Trick was huge with uh, at Budokan at the time. And Aerosmith was on the verge of burning out. So a lot of the American bands... The hard rock bands in America were kind of, I think they were kind of getting a little confused and a little directionless yeah, and burned out a little bit maybe. And when this album hit, it was just amazing. The, a complete change of template, complete sonic upgrade all yeah. the way around. Musicianship was off the charts. The production was fantastic. Even the approach to the production was, was different because it was basically just the band live in the studio there was not a lot of overdubs hardly any overdubs at all which was a bold move back then when you're competing with with kiss and aerosmith and cheap trick on the radio just even the vibe of the record with david lee roth just kind of screaming and laughing and hooting and hollering all over the thing yeah it was a really bold statement this record and it showed a lot of confidence self-confidence not you know the, pr- the producer had a lot of confidence in him the label had a lot of confidence in him to let him get away with all this but the yeah. band themselves had the confidence to do it to create it and i'm the one's a great example of um of that because of the acapella break towards the end mm-hmm. which is kind of indescribable if you haven't heard the song just check it out it's the last thing you expect to happen near the end of the song and there it is it happens and yes it speaks to their talent but more than that it speaks to the just monumental balls that they had to to do something like this and the song itself the rest of the song is just pure adrenaline it's kind of like a double speed zz top lagrange kind of a groove and the riff is incredible the two or three guitar solos in it that are obviously just mind-blowing and really you know you can talk about eddie van halen all day long but you're you're not really addressing the the sound of the band he's a phenomenon sure Mm mm-hmm but really, I honestly think the secret weapon in that band was David Lee Roth. He kind of turned himself into a big joke, sort of, over the decade that he was in the band with hilarious interviews and crazy clothes. and Yeah. But, and questionable vocals, to be honest. But <laughs> the vibe that, that he laid down on those records is unprecedented. There was no place else to get that vibe back then. 
yeah. than a Van Halen album. They were really one of a kind. I think Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins once said, Van Halen was a party that everyone was invited to. And I think that's a great quote because it sums up that lineup of that band really, really perfectly. It didn't matter if you were an unhappy kid in high school. You were invited to that party. Right along with all the cool kids. It didn't make any difference. You put the needle on that record and you were at that party. I think in 1980, they were the penultimate rock and roll band. There was no one greater in 1980 than Van Halen, in my opinion. And, you know, every member of that band played a very significant role. And that's a unique thing. Right down to Michael Anthony singing those really high octave backups. You know, a lot of people don't know that's him, but they were just fantastic, you know. You said earlier about them doing that little acapella thing. The stuff like that is not scripted or, you know, structured in any way. And that was the beauty behind Van Halen, I think. It's just that there's this carefree attitude of like, I don't know, if it works, just do it. It, it. it wasn't buttoned down at all. It was just, it just exploded out of the speakers. And there was a, a joy, you know, that came along with listening to that for me when I was a kid. So once again, we agree. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what? I I like that you picked um, kind of a deeper cut from this record because there are obvious selections that people maybe would have picked over I'm the One. But, um, you know, this is a great pick. I just, I don't know, I can't say enough about this record. I was just in a Facebook discussion with someone yesterday, as a matter of fact, about this record. And you have to give credit to the producers of the record, Ted Templeman Mm -hmm. and Don Landy, I think was the engineer. Because if they had ended up with another producer, like a Tom Werman or a Jack Douglas or someone like that, Mm -hmm. the the hard rock guys back then, they might not have, you know, they might have edited out all the craziness of David Lee Roth. They might have overdubbed rhythm guitars on underneath everything. They might have really polished it up and, and tried to make it fit the template of everything else that was coming out back then. Yeah. Thank God they didn't because it's a really... At the time, it was a really unique and a slap in the face because it was so far out of context. Yeah. And I, I you got to give them credit for having the guts to, to put it out like that. Oh, for sure. But it's funny because that's the, that's the true foundation of what Van Halen really is. You know, when you listen to Unchained, and I, maybe it's Templeman or the engineer saying, come on, Dave, give me a break, you know, like stuff like that, or uh, everybody wants some on Women and Children First where, you know, he talks about the stockings and, you know, whoever it was that said, let's, let's leave that in was a genius. Agreed. Okay. So, uh, your next tune is by Black Sabbath and it is called Black Sabbath from their first record. Yeah. This is the skin vibrate thing. This is goosebumps. This I'll never forget the first time I heard the song. Mm hmm. And I, don't, I can't say that about any of the other songs on here. I will never forget where I was uh, when I first heard this. And it was a situation where I, I literally was speechless. I did not want to move while the song was playing because I was afraid I was going to upset the, the balance of the universe or something. Yeah. You know, after getting into hard rock music and music in general, after a year of listening to Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and stuff like that, going back in time and hearing this record for the first time it was a complete mind blower Mm. it's the you're you're kind of standing there witnessing the birth of a of a genre Mm -hmm. definitely one of the most important and popular genres in music heavy metal i mean 
critics for decades, critics have written it off. But as in terms of record sales and in terms of influence and and lasting impact across generations, heavy metal is huge. Yeah, uh, critics will never mention Black Sabbath in the same breath as the Beatles or the Stones, but they should. They really should. If you look back over their 40 years plus existence, they've had just as much, if not more, impact today than those other bands have. And this song is the first song on their first album. This is just the very beginning of the phenomenon. And honestly, this song, why did anybody bother after this song? It, <laughs> it's all its all in this song. The entire history of metal is in this song. And it's just a monumentally important song. And not only that, but it's really impactful and effective. If you're a 14-year-old kid and you're sitting down staring at this album cover, this six or seven minutes that passes by while this song is playing is just, it, it, you have to just be knocked out of your socks. Yeah. It, it's so perfectly executed. And these guys recorded this album for like, I don't know, like 600 bucks. On yeah. Eight tracks in, in an afternoon and a half. And, you know, it's, it's that's the stuff of myth and legend. I don't know exactly how long it took, but it, it is widely known that it was super cheap and there's a, only a handful of tracks and they did it in, in a really short time. Yep. And and but what they captured in this track is just absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And simple, not complex at all, you know, the the devil's tritone, those three notes. Yeah, and not only that, but I mean, say what you want about Ozzy the person, say what you want about Ozzy the vocalist, but when this band decided that they were gonna go down this dark musical route, they had the exact right singer to complement that darkness because he wails like someone in pain mm -hmm. and it's it's not an act it's you know maybe it's because he wasn't the most skilled singer the most skilled mm -hmm. musician and he was just kind of desperately trying to hang with the other guys but yeah. there is a desperation in his voice in a in a kind of a lost soul kind of element to it you know at least until he, they became big rock stars but there is a quality in his voice that really suits that material really well, and it's the icing on the cake, especially in that song. Yeah. He really sounds like this poor, hapless idiot who's made a mistake and he's going to hell. He really, really sells it. You know, the funniest thing about Black Sabbath is that they were reluctant to call themselves heavy metal musicians. You know, they never did. They always said that, you know, we play heavy blues. We don't, we're not heavy metal musicians. Ozzy still says that to this day, I believe. But heavy metal was a derogatory term when it was first mm -hmm. started to catch on. The critics that didn't like Led Zeppelin and didn't like Black Sabbath used to use it as a as a put down. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a joke that there's hard rock and there's heavy metal. The band that really changed that for me, and we're going to get to Judas Priest in a bit, but the band that really i think deserves a lot of accolades is is Judas Priest because in the mid to late 70s when punk rock came around and kind of wiped the slate clean for a lot of people mm -hmm. they flew the heavy metal banner high they said yes we're metal we are heavy metal and they they called their album british steel and they they really were proud and they embraced it and they kind of turned that around basically since around 79 1980 with British Steel and the new wave of British heavy metal, obviously. Mm -hmm. Heavy metal's in that term. Right around 79, 
they kind of reclaimed that and it claimed it as a the genre tag and it, it exists today so i think Judas priest deserves a lot of credit for sticking to their guns of course they sold out about a decade after that but uh that's another conversation but back at <laughs> the time the time when metal needed somebody to fly the flag more desperately than ever it was judas priest was there doing it so mm-hmm. yeah it was not a term of endearment when it first came out but it ended up uh suiting us just fine yeah and we'll get to them in a second before we do that you've got a song by gillen and it's called mystery universe now i'm not familiar with this tune well brent i hope this is the the budgie of this episode because <laughs> I, it might be i have, I have all the confidence that you are going to really, really dig this song. All right. Um, so Ian Gillen quits Deep Purple. Yep. And he spends a couple of years in a jazz rock kind of a fusion band called the Ian Gillen Band, which has its moments, but it's really not. Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it to the casual listener. Mm. That wound itself up, and he decided to form a hard rock band. Rainbow was out there, who Richie Blackmore left deep purple a few years after gillen did mm-hmm. and um white snake was out there with yep. david coverdale so gillen got in on the hard rock bandwagon as well so there were three competing ex deep purple alumni bands out there and this is where gillen decided okay i'm going to show these guys what my band can do and he this this is a purple-esque track there's no doubt about that but it's just a fantastic song. Mm. It has the prominent Hammond organ in it, like a lot of Deep Purple, a lot of Uriah Heep. Was it John Lord playing? It's not. It's uh, it's Colin Towns. Okay. Who, he was uh, the one guy from the Ian Gillen band that Gillen took with him to form Gillen. Okay. But it's it's amazing. Bernie Torme is the guitar player, mm-hmm. and it's just guitars all over the place. In fact, there is a kind of a drum guitar dual solo i don't know what you'd call it toward the end of the song that's just completely nuts and the lyrics are really amazing and really smart about god the nature of god and religion it's one of gillen's favorite lyrical topics mm-hmm. so it, it really is the complete package and, and uh, rainbow went on to they kind of had their eyes set on america and white snake as well obviously they transformed into a giant band in america gillen never did that gillen stuck with this kind of aggressively creative Maybe a little bit crazy, a little bit silly, but they put art first. If you listen to any one of their records, and I recommend all of them, they, they actually put out six records, none of which came out in the States. That also kind of handicapped them in terms of popularity over here. But yeah, So everybody knows Rainbow and Whitesnake, but not they, they know who Ian Gillen is, but not Gillen the band. And really, if you're looking for something to give it a try to, try to find something new, check out any of Gillen the band's albums they're really really incredible it's a gold mine of stuff and brent let me know what you think about this song i will same way we did it last time as a matter of fact i will definitely do that because we had a we had a, a post episode chat actually about budgie and i loved it and i think it, i think i gave you credit for that if i haven't then certainly i want to do that publicly right now it was budgie is fantastic so you taught me something there for sure with respect to Gillen now, um, I'd always kind of forgotten about him because he dropped off the radar. I knew that he did a bunch of solo stuff in the UK and, and, and Europe. Didn't really release anything in North America until, you know, I think he joined Black Sabbath in like 83 or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's funny because you have Rainbow 
especially with Joe Lynn Turner, really kind of mellowed out, right? And 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 commercialized. Uh, White Snake, of course, did the same thing. Dave Coverdale played the blues angle for a little while, and then he realized that if he really wanted mainstream success, he was going to have to pretty it up and put some lipstick on it, which worked for him. But Gillen always kind of hung back and resisted the urge to do that, and I respect that. Well, he he's kind of a renegade guy. He quit Deep Purple at the height of their popularity they were the biggest selling album group in the world when he quit when smoke on the water was a huge hit machine head was a huge hit and and bam right after that made in japan mm-hmm. came out and the the live version of smoke on the water became another hit he had already quit the band before they even played those shows in japan to record that record he had already announced that he was leaving to the band he and blackmore never got along they each wanted to kind of pull the band and a different direction mm-hmm. and you know to walk away from the biggest selling album band on earth is pretty crazy mm-hmm. you have to be really confident about what you're going to do next and you have to have a lot of faith in your your uh, ability but also a lot of integrity to walk away from all that money and that fame mm-hmm. and that's what he did you know i don't want to get too far into his biography here but he invested his money in non-musical stuff he bought a hotel he started he invested in a company that makes motorcycles no i didn't know that in the uk yeah he was not musical for about a year and then he started to demo stuff and and he tried a bunch of different things but eventually the people he ended up working with are a lot of people that worked with him on the jesus christ superstar uh record and Mm -hmm. when they played together it was very fusion-esque and very jazzy almost like a more aggressive steely dan yeah so that's where he went for the next four or five years he was in the ian gillen band and that was bold because when punk rock was huge in the UK and everything on the charts in the UK, everything that was happening was punk. He was playing jazz rock, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. But there you go. He did it because that's just what he wanted to do. And then when he finally went back to hard rock, he, in my opinion, the money and the fame and the success, at, at least over here, was really non-existent. But he did it anyway. And over in the UK, they had several top five albums and a bunch of top five singles so he had a real string of success over there right alongside of rainbow and white snake but over here um i i believe the glory road album came out on rso mm. i can't even confirm that that's how how um, sketchy the information is about his united states history back then there really isn't anything research hasn't really kicked up anything yeah Well, next up, we've got the mighty Judas Priest and an excellent track. I'm so glad you selected this. It's the last track on uh, the British Steel record. It's Steeler. Yeah, Priest, like I said, they they really flew the flag for metal when when it was uncool to do so. Mm -hmm. This album, British Steel, represents kind of a dumbed-down simplified judas priest they they definitely made their commercial move here mm-hmm. it started i guess you could say it started with hellbent for leather that that record is kind of a, a move in the american direction but yeah really this has living after midnight on it they replaced les binks with um dave, dave holland. holland yeah the music just got really simplified yeah but along with that accessibility the the raw aggressiveness on this record and the bite of the sound of this album and the rob halvert's vocal performance is anything but commercial it's amazing i mean living after midnight has hit single written all over it it's not a surprise that that was a hit but yeah 
it's not the sellout that you might think it is that the record as a whole and there's a lot of amazing stuff on this record and it's kind of uh, a straddling of the middle ground between commerciality in 1980 for hard rock and and the, and the real deal yeah they kind of create thrash metal on this album too which is really interesting that that song rapid fire yeah is that's a thrash metal song and that's like a good three years before there was such a thing as thrash metal one of the building blocks for that genre you know any record that has rapid fire and steeler on it is <laughs> you can't really say it's a fm radio sellout album it's it's definitely not it's got a lot of bite on on this record and i picked steeler because the end of it it's just amazing it's it's not only the end of the song but it's also the end of the album and it wraps up the entire album in a really incredible way they just kind of lock into this groove and cruise for two or three minutes and it's just a, it's hypnotic it's just really amazing and it builds up to this big explosive ending at the at the climax and it's just really incredible I, this this is another one on here that quite literally gives me goosebumps a great record uh, it's just really diverse you know i think about songs like the rage and that bizarre you know pseudo reggae opening um, yeah yeah and and stuff like breaking the law but also grinder which is almost a little bit heavier than acdc i was reading somewhere that halford had said they had toured with acdc in 79 and he said i think they kind of inspired us a little bit on british steel it's just such a, a great kind of diverse record you don't have to be old to be wise. It's, it's one of my favorite priest. It's one of my favorite metal records, to be honest. I mean, that whole run, starting with Hellbat for Leather, or I think it was called Killing Machine in the UK, uh, through British Steel, The Point of Entry, Screaming for Vengeance. Like those albums just fill me with joy because I remember the the happiness that I felt when I was listening to those at a certain point in my life. I, I'm exactly the same way, and I I think that the simplification that they did really really suited them well mm -hmm. not that the proggy stuff before that wasn't good i mean there are classic songs in the catalog before that that are just untouchable like victim of changes and sinner and, and all that stuff yeah. but it's a lot more complex and it's really a different animal mm -hmm. and i think when they kind of simplified things it really put the focus on the heaviness yeah because it's not about the notes and the time signatures and the you know, that, that kind of thing. It's just about the, the power chords in the face. And you know what? That, that's where the ACDC comes in, I think. Because when you listen to Living After Midnight, there's a lot of open space in that song. Right. Yeah. And, and if, you play, um, if you play guitar, then if you play along with Sin After Sin album or Sad Wings of Destiny album, yeah. and then you play along with British Steel and Point of Entry, yeah. there's a lot of those open... ACDC power chords on mm -hmm. the ladder. Yep. There's, it's just basically three or four chords, and you know a lot of unison playing where everybody's just hitting that big giant chord at the same time, and that that really does come from ACDC. I think that's a great point. Next is Kiss, and uh, you've kind of got like a little bit of a two for one here. So you've got "I Want You" slash "Take Me," which I believe are the first two songs from Rock and Roll Over. Right. And in my mind, they are one two-part song, probably in my mind alone, but there you go. They're the first two songs on the very first album I ever owned. So they've got a real special place in my heart for me. Listening to these two songs was the beginning of like 40 minutes of, of Escape, like I said, just mm -hmm. putting the record on and, and just staring at the album cover and 
these two songs are great. Um, it, one of them's got like a fake out intro. I want you starts off with acoustic guitar and it sounds like it's going to be a ballad, and then it blasts off a few seconds in. Yeah, Take Me is just more of the same right after. Just it's just hammers you. This was my my introduction to not only to Kiss but to hard rock. Basically, this is the first record I ever owned. Oh, when you're formulating your taste. The first things that you hear really, really kind of imprint on you. Mm-hmm. And the guitar sound on this record and the bass sound on this record and the, the song structures and stuff like that really kind of led me in a particular direction. So when you try to get down to the core of what it is that you like, why do I like what I like and what exactly is it that I like? If you trace the thread all the way down into my past, this this is it right here. Um, this is just the core of it all. This is the wellspring that, that everything else comes from you know i'm fascinated by this stuff why was this your entry point into kiss what is it an age thing was there a specific reason for it well i'm in junior high i'm i'm 14 i think it was 1976 or 77 late 76 early 77 and i don't have a ton of friends in school and one kid that uh befriended me was a huge Kiss fan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, me not really knowing how to make friends, how to have a friend, I lied and I told them I was a huge Kiss fan too. And I knew what they looked like, uh, but I didn't know what they sounded like. Mm-hmm. And I, I did not own any records at all. My sister had a bunch of records, that, but I never listened to them. I had no connection with any of them. Mm-hmm. So I was just not in that world yet. So he took a different bus home from school than I did, but he lived just a few blocks away from a mall where the, the local record store was. The, the cool record store was called Music Machine. Okay. And he we talked about Kiss, and I just I lied my way through my part of the conversation. <laughs> but I was just happy to be having a conversation with somebody. And he said, hey, why don't you take, take my bus home with me, and we can listen to records. Wow, I'm getting invited over to this kid's house. He's, he wants to listen to music. That's awesome. So I did that. And he said, great. So why don't you tomorrow, why don't you bring the Kiss album, the new Kiss album to school? Because I told him I had it, you know, back in earlier in the conversation. He said, why don't you bring that over? I don't have it yet. So I can listen to it. And I said to myself, "Uh oh, I'm busted. I don't have the album. What I did was I took the bus to his bus stop, walked over to the mall, bought the album and then walked back up to his house. Wow. I took the shrink wrap off and stashed it somewhere <laughs> and knocked on his door and said, here, I got the album. I brought it over. Here you go. Let's listen to it. It's really great. Lying through my teeth. <laughs> and we sat down and listened to it, and he, he didn't know, but it was the first time both of us were hearing the album. So it was just, I guess you could say, long story short, it was me in a desperate attempt to make a friend. That is an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> wow. See, this is this is one of those times where, you know, I always love doing this show, but I especially love doing this show because that's a fantastic story. The album really resonates with me now on that emotional level. And, and I wonder sometimes whether I can be objective enough to really understand whether it's a great record or just a pile of garbage that I really love. Mm. And I like to think that I know enough about music now that I can be that objective, and I do honestly believe that it's a great '70s hard rock record. Yeah, uh, but even if it was garbage, I would still love it to death. <laughs> 
Well, I agree with you uh, with respect to Kiss in that way, because I was just a a blind fan for the longest time. And I mean, some of it is a bit iffy, but um, there are those records. And I think Rock and Roll Over is one of those. It, It stands up. It's just a good, you know, 70s hard rock record. Okay, so your last tune, Bob, is by Motorhead, a band I wished I'd paid more attention to when I was a kid. And the tune is called Too Late, Too Late. This one is kind of an obscurity. It was the B-side to one of the singles from the Overkill album. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was the B-side to the Overkill single. So it wasn't on the album. Not until late 90s when they started to reissue all this stuff remastered with bonus tracks and stuff. Um, but I actually had the 45. This song, it's not as fast as a lot of Motorhead stuff was back then mm-hmm. it's not 100 miles per hour like like a lot of their stuff but it's it's better for that because it it's really kind of finds a mid-paced groove and yeah. it's it's heavier because of that it makes more of an impact because it's not flying by mm-hmm. it doesn't have that adrenaline charge that a lot of their stuff has and, and i love that stuff too i find that really appealing appealing just for that reason but i can't be alone brent please tell me i'm not alone that I can hear, I can feel attitude. Oh in, God, yeah. In yeah. The music, not not just the vocals or the lyrics, but the music itself, the way they're attacking their instruments and the way that they're playing. You can just feel that this band was dripping with attitude. Yeah. It, it's in the sonics, it's in the performance, and it's also in the lyrics too, which is great. But the lyrics are, are basically just an fu song, which Lemmy's got a whole bunch of those, but. It just reeks of attitude. You're familiar with the band, I know, and and what they sound like. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this particular song. Definitely check this song out. No, I am. I do know the song. It's a crusher. It doesn't go 180 miles an hour like a lot of their other stuff, but it pounds. It's not quite as, how can I say this, like a a swinging song, like uh, the chase is better than the catch, you know? It just kind of got that one, two, one, two, but not a thrasher. It's still a crusher. And, you know, with regards to what you say about attitude, absolutely. I don't think there's a Motorhead song that doesn't have attitude, to be honest, of, of all the ones that I've heard. That's true. They couldn't help it. They, yeah. they just, it's just who they were. So I'm in high school, and I really didn't have the social skills. It just wasn't in me to really withstand all the challenges emotionally with what was happening in my home life. Mm-hmm. And all the stresses of the social stresses and, and that whole culture at high school mm-hmm. where I just didn't fit in. And the one thing that I wished I had was that FU attitude. Mm. And I just did not have it. I, it was not in me. So I gravitated towards Motorhead because they really, really looked you right in the eye and said, F you. I don't know if I can swear on your show. Of course you can. Okay, well, you know what the F stands for. <laughs> they, they, they really did just have that in, in every song, every recording they did. It was just there. Yeah. And I sorely needed that in my life and, and listening to that and just headphones, eyes closed. More than an escape, it was, it was just powerful. It was really powerful. Yeah, and and for me too. I mean, I uh, I grew up in a household without a father, and I I would venture to say that that's why I gravitated to heavy metal was because it it almost provided attitude and that strength that you know I felt like I was lacking. It, it I don't know why I didn't like Motorhead. I think that they were kind of maybe at the other end of the extreme. Lemmy scared me when I was a kid, but 
you know, I love bands like Accept and, you know, Lizzie Borden on top of the Maidens and Priests and stuff like that, because I felt like I needed, like it provided me with a certain power. And I think that that's the allure of heavy metal for a lot of kids who are, who are, um, our age at that time. Well, I, I, I was a musician at the time when I had discovered them right around, I was probably just learning to play guitar and maybe a sophomore or a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. While I was learning to play, you know, you go through this period where you're, you're kind of a snob, like the, the harder it is to play, the better it must be. Mm-hmm. Because you're striving to be, you know, a, the best musician you can be. Mm-hmm. And, and also, in, in high school, being a musician is really competitive, too. You have to be better than that guy, and this guy's trying to be better than you. And, yeah. and Motorhead were not a chops band. They were not, like, elite musicians. No. And thank God. And what they had was the attitude. Yeah. You know, sometimes people don't see that. They they don't see that, well, you know, they can't really play that well, but they have tons of attitude. Some people just see, well, they can't really play that well, so I, I guess I don't like them. That that was lost on me, you know, because when I was a kid, I was kind of more fascinated with the musical dexterity, you know, of people doing amazing things like Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, I was kind of more into the, the, the virtuosity of music. And I don't know why that is, but I just I just was. And shame on me for not kind of paying more attention to Motorhead. I think I heard Ace of Spades when I was, you know, in grade 10. I, I, I just was like, yeah, it's not really my thing. That's interesting. Did you like um, ACDC right off the bat? My earliest recollections of ACDC was, was back in black. And to be honest, because it was such a dark record, you know, in terms of like malevolence, that's how it appeared to me anyway. It's a black cover and it was kind of gloomy and scary. I think I was like 12 years old, right? Um, I'd read in Hit Parader, this is funny, that somebody had written in and said there was backward masking on back in black so if you listen to hell's bells there's a part that says you know if you spin it backwards at a certain point it says satan has me a prisoner free me free me and then on back in black it's you know again at a certain point it says satan uh help me and he saved my life hail satan hail satan it's it's amazing that i still remember that to this day but it, it that had such a grasp on me when i read that i was fascinated but also terrified at the same time and so acdc were like these evil and then i saw you know the, the cover of highway to hell right with uh, the horns and the tail and angus and stuff like that so i kind of until i you know became a teenager i was a little bit intimidated by them but then i of course i love them i love back in black and i loved flick of the switch in particular because i thought that was a really undistilled kind of middle of the road great hard rock record so anyway sorry long answer to uh, to your question there but no it's interesting because they're I, I don't know that I'd put them on the Motorhead punk rock end of the scale, but they definitely were not a chops band. No, um, no. They they did not have a lot of technical ability. They they did one thing, and they did it really, really well, but mm-hmm. they just did one thing. And I know a lot of kids in, in high school, when I was in high school, that just wrote them off because the, it was so simple and so stupid. Mm-hmm. And you know, the reason why I loved it was because it was simple and stupid. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, it's got to be looked at as a spectrum where, you know, Ingve Malmsteen's on one end, maybe, or Dream Theater, or Rush is on one end, who are all great. Yeah. And, and the Motorheads and ACDCs are all on the other end. And they're just as great. It's just in a different way. And, and if you're if you're only on one end of the spectrum, you're missing out on a lot of great stuff. Yeah, it's so true. If I could go back, I'd listen to Motorhead a lot earlier. I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
Okay, man, you have a request. You have a bonus uh, song that you want to talk about, and I'm, I'm going to let you do that because I really like the song. It's it's Fleetwood Mac's Albatross. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac might have some people scratching their heads out after we're talking about um, <laughs> Motorhead and Judas Priest, but um, all these guys on the list that I just went through will tell you that they were Fleetwood Mac fans back in the late 60s. All the guitarists, certainly. I know uh, Glenn Tipton was a huge Peter Green fan. Yeah, Green Manalishi is a Fleetwood Mac tune, is it not? It is. The Green Manalishi was a Fleetwood Mac song. Um, Aerosmith has covered Rattlesnake Shake. Mm-hmm. The Peter Green version of Fleetwood Mac was really an, an amazing band. It was a blues band, but they were really proggy. They they would go out on these prog excursions and, and um, oh well, mm-hmm. that's all. I believe it was covered by the Rockets at some point in the 70s. It was on the radio a lot. That's like a nine-minute song if you listen to the whole thing in its entirety. And it's, The band was one great guitarist after another, and one of them was named Danny Kerwan. Mm-hmm. Just He passed away, what, two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, maybe 2017 was a really bad year. We lost a lot of great musicians, and it was seemed like it was one after another with Prince and Bowie and Lemmy. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie Deal before that, and it just seemed like the one chapter was closing. And then we seemed to kind of have a, um, a reprieve from that a little bit. But for me, Danny Kerwin is a big one because um, those early Fleetwood Mac albums, I think, are great. And, you know, you could you could take their first four or five records and make one really kick-ass uh, compilation or mixtape. One of the songs I would put on there is an instrumental called Albatross. It was a huge hit in the UK without the internet in front of me here i believe it it was a number one single and it was re-released sometimes they do this in britain they re-release singles decades later and and they'll hit the charts again Mm. so this is charted more than once Uh, it's a beautiful guitar instrumental it really has very little to do with heavy metal really nothing frankly to do with heavy metal Mm. but it has everything to do with with beautiful lyrical guitar playing. If you're a fan Mm -hmm. of the electric guitar, it's really an amazing composition, a beautiful recording, and Danny Kerwin plays on it. Another sad loss. I'm going to recommend this to everybody. Uh, Please check out this song. If you're not a metalhead and you're not going to listen to any of this other stuff, just check this one out. It's, It's really a gorgeous song. Yeah, it is. It's very languid, very deliberate, very relaxing to listen to. I actually really like it a lot. Great recommendation on top of uh, some great hard rock and metal picks here. This is this is a fantastic playlist. I, I had a I had a really good time talking about this stuff as I always do with you. This is um, it was just very enjoyable for me. You know, it's it, it just kind of astounds me when I think about what I'm going to say to you at the end of the show because like it's almost like I'm talking to a version of myself. It's it's funny. There's a lot of us out here. Yeah. You know, we yeah. all grew up on all this stuff, and and at that time in our lives, it was hugely important and you can't i think it's sad if you're able to just walk away from that i think i think there's probably something wrong with you if you can just walk away from that Mm -hmm. that kind of connection with something and and with art really it will never change for me i i hope it never does it i really feel just as passionately about all this stuff as i did when it happened it's just imprinted on my dna no me too so thank you sir I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty as well. Well, it's great to have a place where I can go and, and expose that part of myself here. And, and it's it's really therapeutic and, and I really enjoy it. And I'm, thank you again for having me back. 
Oh, you're welcome. That place will always be available to you, sir. Thank you, Brent. You bet. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Bob Mayo. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>